Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer before we open the word this morning. Our Father, we are thankful that you give us your word and thankful that you have promised to hold us fast. We pray that you would speak to us in that still, quiet voice of yours, a father to his children. When we hear this word read, that as we hear it preached, we would know that we are hearing your voice from on high. We pray that that might come through the very lips of Christ in this text and by the power of the Spirit. Teach us of you. Teach us what it is that you require of us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, this is the holy and errant word of God. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. No one has ever been offended by a ministry of healing. No one. In fact, crowds will gather and lines will form if we think that that person has a legitimate ministry of healing. If you knew this morning that down the street there was a man or a woman that had the ability to heal, I doubt that most of you would be sitting in the room this morning. Uh, you would be on your way down there, either for yourself, or you would be dragging along family members and friends that maybe are suffering from cancer, or suffering from some sickness, or some malady, or some affliction that they have been going through. You would get them in front of that miracle worker, that healer. And rightfully so. No one has ever been offended by a ministry of healing. We saw that even in the text last week. We See, as Matthew said last week, he said that many came to Jesus. 
Many came to him with people that were demon-possessed, and many came to him with sickness, and Matthew tells us that he healed all of them, every single one of them. People were lining up. Crowds were gathering around Jesus because he was doing miracles. And we would expect that this is what Jesus was after, but he wasn't. Jesus is not so concerned with the adoration and the applause of crowds as He is with the submission of individuals. Uh, tonight, as Pastor Kevin mentioned, we will come back together tonight for our monthly prayer service where we gather together to pray. And uh, tonight, We'll do what we did probably three or four months ago was the last time that we did it. I, I think it's one of the most beautiful prayer services, services that we have, period. Uh, where we have different elders and elders and wives stationed up here across the front and in the back of the room. And, and at different points in the service, while we're singing hymns, people begin coming up and streaming up to be prayed for by their elders. And they come up as individuals. And the elders love it because they get to pray for individuals that are coming forward for prayers individuals. You know, as we've been going through this faith focus and as we've been learning to pray together, uh, and I hope you're all seeking to learn to pray better, uh, one of the things that I've committed to as I'm seeking to learn to pray better is to pray for every single member of this congregation every single month. And so I have you on a large database sheet by alphabetical order, and you're assigned today. Uh, and I pray for you, and I pray for your children, and different things that come to mind, and I pray for you by name, each and every single individual. Because we're not about building an institution. We're not about maintaining some structure of a church. We're concerned about individuals coming to faith and growing in their faith. Jesus is not so concerned with the adoration and the applause of the crowds as He is with the submission of individuals. In fact, Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw this crowd around Him, he had a reaction, and it's not the reaction that we would expect. A crowd starts to gather around someone, and we would be prone to say, Ah, oh, revival has broken out. This is wonderful. That's not Jesus' response. He rather tells them to cross over to the other side. He wants to get away with the disciples. We will celebrate a preacher or a speaker who gathers crowds. But Jesus knows that crowds can be a false sign rather than a true sign. He's not so concerned with the applause and adoration of crowds as He is the submission of the individual. He wants our submission to Him. And this offends many. He wants your submission to Him as Lord and Savior. He wants my submission to Him as Lord and Savior. How completely does He want this? 
Well, this text gives us a picture of what submission to Jesus looks like. Jesus sees this crowd, and instead of just kind of staying in the middle of this crowd, he says to his disciples, the inner core of his disciples, the twelve, he says, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. And as he does so, he gives us three marks of those who are submitted to him. The first is total commitment. The second is unrivaled love. And the third is trusting faith. This is what individual submission looks like. Total commitment, unrivaled love, and trusting faith. Before Jesus can get away, though, with the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a scribe comes up to him. The scribes were the religious leaders of the day. They were the scholars of the day. They are in the New Testament, often linked together with the Pharisees, and they are often the chief enemies of Jesus in the Gospels, along with the Pharisees. But this scribe appears to be somewhat likable. Uh, he approaches Jesus, and he approaches him out of respect, and he calls him teacher, which would have been a, quite a salutation for a scribe to give someone that wasn't trained like he was trained. And then he makes a bold statement. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. He reminds me of, of Peter in the Gospels when Peter says to the Lord Jesus, when he says, uh, I will never deny you. You think of uh, John and James when their mother comes to Jesus and she says to Jesus, she says, can one of my sons sin on your left? Hand, and on your left hand in the kingdom, and the other sit on your right hand in the kingdom when your kingdom comes. And Jesus turns to John and James, and he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? And they boldly and brazenly say, Oh, yeah, we, we can drink that cup. It's just a bold profession made in ignorance, and this does not impress Jesus. He knows that they and the scribe did not know anything about what they were actually signing up for. So he doesn't accept it. I don't have any other information about this scribe. Uh, we can only guess. Uh, I tend to think that he probably wasn't coming to Jesus with genuine faith. Uh, he probably is like that seed in the parable that Jesus tells, the seed that's thrown upon the rocky ground, that it just kind of immediately sprouts up, it just immediately reacts. There's an emotional response. There's a kind of blind excitement here, but that doesn't equal a profession of faith. He doesn't really have faith, and Jesus can see that. He doesn't celebrate this man's profession even as he does not celebrate the crowd because he knows that it's not genuine. Now, not that this man, I think, was intentionally trying to lead Jesus astray or that the crowds were intentionally trying to lead Jesus astray, astray but they had just misjudged. He doesn't know what he is saying because he doesn't know what is required. And so Jesus, instead of embracing him, he lays out for him what he is committing himself to. He says, you want to know what it means to follow me? Well, this is what it looks like. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? 
Do you understand that I have no earthly comforts? Do you understand that I have no home? Do you understand that this earth is not my home? And you want to follow me. This isn't the way to worldly success. Jesus had no earthly home. I think uh, in the Gospels, he will often stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He will stay in their home, we know. There are times that he will stay in the Apostle Peter's home, but he, he had no home to call his own that he owned. He had no no earthly riches but his ministry to other people. He, he had no comfort but doing the will of his heavenly Father. He didn't enjoy any, uh, anything outside of that, any kind of worldly success. Jesus is demanding from this man that he can't just have a kind of easy believism. He just can't sign up for the easy blessing but refuse the endure, to endure the hardships that are to come. Jesus requires complete and utter total commitment total commitment from his disciples. And he wants the scribe to understand this. I think besides false teachers, false professors are the greatest millstone around the neck of the church. I mean, I shudder to think how many have made a false profession of Christ, not knowing Christ at all, and have led others away from Christ because of their false profession. It's easy to profess belief, but quite another to actually follow Jesus. There's simply no adding Jesus on to the life we already have. There's simply no just kind of tacking him on as, as an appendage or as something extra. That doesn't work. He swallows up life. Our life becomes about Him. He becomes the foundation of life. Our life becomes grounded in Him. He becomes the end of life. Our life is pursued for Him. For the Christian, Christ becomes all in all. That's what the Apostle Paul says, right? He says, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. His entire life, he, he wants to sum it up. How do I sum up my entire life? He says, it's just Christ. All in Christ, all about Christ, all for Christ. And then he says, and to die is gain. Why? Because it's just more of Christ. It's all of life consumed by Christ. He's demanding. It requires total commitment. I heard a story once about a college student, uh, a young man that went into a photography lab, uh, a little studio, and he had this picture in a frame, and he took it in there to the, the photo lab technician because he wanted this, this photo copied, he wanted a duplicate made. So he handed it over to the, to the photo technician, and the technician took the, the frame off, and he pulled out the picture, and, and on the back of the picture was this inscription. And the inscription said, uh, Dear Henry, 
I love you so very much. I love you more day after day, and I will love you forever and ever. I will love you for all of eternity. Signed, Susan. And then there was a P.S. If we ever break up, I want this picture back. Jesus won't allow a Susan-type commitment. It's total commitment. He's much more demanding. In fact, that leads to the second point. Jesus' disciples are to have an unrivaled love for him. This interaction with the next man may seem a little odd. It's odd for a number of reasons. One is, first the man comes to him and we're told that this man is a disciple. Now, he's not one of the 12 disciples. He's probably one of the the greater group of disciples like we see in John 6. In John 6, we're told there that there were many disciples that followed Jesus. And you'll remember there that Jesus said some hard words, and then we're told that many of those disciples left him. Well, this man is probably within a group like that. He was following Jesus. But like the scribe, it's most likely that he had not made a true profession of faith. He had begun to follow Jesus, but he hadn't actually trusted in Jesus as his Savior and his Lord. He hadn't made that kind of total commitment. He addresses Jesus in respect as well. He says, Lord, and then he says, let me go first and bury my father. He wants to follow Jesus, just like the scribe, but but he wants to do it on his own terms. First, let me go and do something else first, Jesus. Then I will come and I will follow you. But Jesus will have nothing to do with that kind of confession. Jesus is a jealous Savior. He won't allow any rival for our love to him. And we wouldn't want it any other way. Think about a wife that would allow her husband to make eyes at other women and to flirt with other women. Not only is he a bad husband, but she is a bad wife. So Jesus is a a jealous Lord and Savior. He would not be a good Lord and Savior if He wasn't jealous for our unrivaled love to Him. It can't be rivaled. There's nothing, nothing that can or should compete in our hearts for Christ. Nothing. This text seems very hard and It's fascinating to read the commentaries because commentators will try and distance themselves as much from what appears pretty self-evident in the passage as they can. They say, well, surely this man's father hadn't died. It's probably that what this man was doing is that he was looking days down the road or weeks down the road or months down the road or even decades down the road, depending on how far away they want to get, how harsh they see this text. And they say, well, it's going to be years down the road that his father is going to die. And so what this man is saying is he's calculating. He's saying, all right, I'm going to follow you, but first I want to wait for my father to die years down the road. That may be the case, but I don't think that's the most clear reading. Commentators will say, well, he was trying to honor his father and trying to follow the fifth commandment of honoring his father and 
I think there's no doubt that that is probably true, but at face value, it seems that this man's father has died. His father has died. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Isn't that just callous? Jesus would say this. Does he not care that this man's father has died? And does he not care that this man is in the midst of grief? That can't be the case. The reasons Jesus came into the world was to conquer death. The death is an enemy. When he's at the tomb of Lazarus, after Mary and Martha have lost Lazarus, he weeps with them because he is grieving with them for their brother. When he's nailed out upon the cross in the midst of that agony and about ready to pass into the presence of his father, he looks down and he sees Mary, his mother, and he sees John, his beloved disciple. And what does he do? He says to John, this is your mother. And he says to Mary, this is your son as a way of comforting them. Now comfort one another, it's as if he's saying. It can't be that. It's not that Jesus is dismissing this man's grief. Rather, he's challenging his priority of love. Will this man have a rival for Jesus in his affections? I think it's very similar to the account of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. And when that rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to inherit the kingdom. And Jesus tells him, well, you must go and sell all that you have and then give it to the poor. Well, now, is that a requirement for discipleship in Christ? If that's a requirement, then Jesus could have never completed his ministry because he was supported by people that had wealth. He was supported by people that had things. If every single disciple had to sell everything that they have and give it to the poor, then there would be no gathered church body together. It's not that. But it's rather that the riches had such a hold on his heart. They gripped him so fervently that Jesus is saying, you've got to get rid of this. Let's see what you love more, me or the riches. I've sat with a husband, this was years ago in another congregation, I sat with him one day, his wife had come to me uh, because she was, she was in pain, because she said all her husband did at night was play video games every night, sit down and play video games, and she said he, he just kind of doesn't talk to me, just plays video games. I was sitting with this husband one day and speaking to him, and I was talking with him about this very thing. And he said, well, I mean, I talk to her when I get home. We eat dinner together. We, I try to give her some attention. I don't know what to do. I said, well, you go sell your console and you sell your video games. That's what you do. We can't earn salvation by what we give up for Christ, but we can't have salvation unless we're willing to give everything up for Christ. 
Anything that would be a barrier to our pursuit of Christ, anything that would be a rival affection, anything that would rise to the level of first importance in my heart, in my life, must be let go of. It must be put away. John MacArthur said, the Lord may not take away comforts, money, or relationships with others, but all of those things and everything else besides must be given over to Him to do with what He pleases. Otherwise, He is not Lord, no matter how much allegiance to Him is professed. He demands unrivaled love from His disciples. This man has a lack of urgency about the call to follow Jesus. He, he wanted to do other things first because the other things were more important in his heart and in his life than Jesus. And Jesus will not stand for that. Because a delay in following Jesus is not just simply a delay. It's a rejection of Jesus. He says, follow me, not later, but now, follow me. Now, there are some of you in this room that have never responded to that call. He says, follow me, and you haven't. And maybe you think you'll delay it, thinking, you know, I, I want to get through my education first. I want to progress a little bit in business first. I want to store a little bit more of a nest egg away first. I want to have a little fun with these things over here that it seems like Jesus coming and following him, it would inhibit me being able to enjoy those things. You aren't just delaying following Jesus. You're rejecting following Jesus. And it is an awful path to be upon. He says, follow me. And it's a call for immediacy. For now. There's some of you that have answered that call. And you follow Jesus. But there are certain things that he has made demands upon you in your life that you know by conscience that you need to be done with, that you need to put away, and you're delaying it, and you're denying Jesus. It may be that it's something sinful, and that just has to be completely done away with, it has to be cast to the side. It may be something that is not itself sinful, but, it, but it's something that grabs a hold of your heart and grabs a hold of your life. And so, so though a little bit of it may be an okay thing, you have to weigh whether you keep that thing. Because it's too much of a temptation for you. Why would we want to entertain anything that would rival our love for Christ? He allows no rival. He will not stand idly by as you allow a rival in your life. The most important question that we will ever face 
is will I follow Jesus? That's the most important question. Will I follow Jesus? You know what the second is? It's not what we often run to. It's not what job should I take or what college should I go to or even what person I should marry. That's not the second most important question. The second most important question is, will I follow Jesus in this moment? From moment to moment, that question being answered, will I follow Jesus in this moment? And all of those moments, they stack up And they are much more important than those great questions that we often have. Will I follow Jesus in the moment to moment, day after day? He demands unrivaled love. And that leads to the third point. Jesus requires trusting faith. It's a famous scene. Jesus is with the disciples there, and he tells them, let's cross over to the other side, and he's speaking to the other, uh, about the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and so they get into a boat, and it's night, and they head out across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it sits in kind of a basin. There are mountains or tall hills around the Sea of Galilee, and so what will happen is, is the warm air off the top of the sea will, will rise and it'll mix with the cold air of the mountains, and all of a sudden a storm can come about, and they can be violent storms, especially at night, and it's a night such as this that Jesus and the disciples are on a boat, and they are crossing the Sea of Galilee to get to the other side. And a storm erupts, and the wind begins to howl, and the waves begin to crash, and the boat begins to fill up with water. It's almost a comical scene if you think about it. You have these disciples, some of them have fished on the sea all of their life. This is their trade. This is their backyard. You've got John and James and Peter and Andrew. This is what they did before they followed Jesus, fished on this very sea. And they are petrified. This is not comical to them. They are afraid that they're going to perish and they're going to die. And in that moment, Matthew kind of pans over and we see Jesus asleep. He's asleep and they're freaking out. As Mark will tell us, he's asleep in the stern of the ship on a cushion, on a pillow. And so these disciples are frantic and afraid that they're going to perish. And so you have these fishermen that go over to Jesus in a frantic state and wake up this carpenter's son asking him for help. It's almost comical. Whenever I read this gospel account, question always goes through my mind, why? Why, Jesus? I mean, in His divinity, He's omniscient. He knows everything, right? Why? Why didn't you just tell the disciples, look, there's going to be a squall on the sea, so let's just stay on this side for a couple of hours. We're going to take a nap here on the beach, and then we'll cross over afterwards. Or at the very least, why didn't He get on the boat and say, you know what? I'm going to stay awake, and I'm staying awake for this reason. There's going to be a storm. Everything's going to be okay. Or at the very, very least, he could have said, look, I'm going to go over there and take a nap. 
there's going to be a storm. We're going to make it to the other side. Don't worry and don't wake me up. But he didn't. He didn't. Why? He leads them right into the middle of the trial, the storm. Why? Jesus often does this. He leads us into the storms and the trials of life so that everything else might be stripped away. You know, those fishermen were not thinking about their previous occupation at that moment. They weren't thinking how handy they were. They weren't thinking how smart they were. They weren't thinking how handsome they were. They weren't thinking how many riches their father had that they were going to inherit. They weren't thinking about any of these things. In that moment of trial, they are left with themselves, the situation, and God. And that's it. It strips everything else away. It's like what has often been said, there are no atheists in foxholes. You get in the midst of a trial, a severe enough trial, you know that you can't depend upon yourself. I can't look to myself. forces you to look to another, to look to God. Jesus leads them through this trial so that they might look to Him, might look to Him in faith. Isn't it true that trials have a way of kind of stripping everything away and just reminding us how incredibly dependent we are upon God? That all the things and all the people that we would have trusted in before and that we were trusting in before, they, they seem to be nothing in the midst of a severe trial. And we find that the only thing we can do is just cry out. We cry out to Him. And we've all experienced this, or most of us that are in the faith, you get on the other side of a trial and you look back at it and you say, I would never wish that upon my worst enemy. And yet on this side of it, you think my faith is stronger. It's more solid. I'm trusting less in myself and I'm more dependent upon Him. One of my favorite pictures, uh, Leah is the picture taker in our family and one of my favorite pictures that we have at home is of a day at Lake Michigan, and it was a stormy day. I remember it well. Uh, and in this picture, the waves are just crashing, and Ethan is about four years old at the time, and he's standing in front of these waves. And the wind is clearly blowing as all of his hair is pointed in one direction. You can almost hear the wind and the waves. And he, he's standing there before Lake Michigan, Great Lake Michigan, with his back to the camera, and he has his arms out like this. And there's a great contrast. This little boy standing in front of this great sea in front of him. It's crashing, and his hands open wide. Grayson reminded me this morning that what he was saying when he was standing in front of the lake was, waves come to me. And, and it appears as if they're obeying him. 
it appears as if he is in charge. But it only appears that way. In this account, it is reality. Jesus awakens, and he first instructs the disciples before he does anything. This is the point. He's saying, look, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? That is, my disciples believe trustingly in me. Why are you afraid? You can depend on me. You can rest in me. Will our faith waver at times? Yes, it's faith for goodness sakes. Will it be stronger sometimes and lower at other times? Absolutely. But Jesus' disciples look to him with dependent faith. He is worthy of it, and he then demonstrates it. He was not play-acting asleep, and he was not play-acting his authority over nature. This is the Lord of all. He rebukes the wind and the sea. He says just a few couple of words, as Mark tells us, and the winds just stop. The winds just cease. And it's quiet. It's calm. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I, I love that this is a church that loves the Bible. I wouldn't want to pastor any other kind of church. Uh, this is the most important thing about a church. Love the Bible. And uh, I love that Different weeks, I'll walk out here and you have peppered me with different questions. Well, I don't understand this. What about this? Let me get to talk through the Bible. And maybe if I was to categorize maybe the largest category of questions that have come out as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, it, it, would, be, it would be the two natures of Christ, what theologians call the hypostatic union. That Jesus is fully man, and he's fully God, truly man, truly God in one person. That there's no mixing of the two, that there's no division of the two, there's no separation of the two, as the Chalcedonian Creed says, but he is distinctly human, and he is distinctly divine, yet in one person. And some of you have asked different questions. Why? I don't understand. How does he do this and he not do this and say he can't do this and he does do this? Some say that in this text, Jesus was only plain to be asleep. That's just nonsense. He's fully, truly human. And in his humanity, he had just been preaching all day. And he had been doing miracles all day. And now it's evening. And in his humanity, he is absolutely exhausted. He's spent. And so when he lays down in that boat, he didn't need coaxing. He just fell asleep. But here's the problem, right? That raises a question. Psalm 121 says that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. So was he asleep in the boat? 
Yes. Was he awake in the boat? Yes. What is true of one nature of Christ can be attributed to his whole person. So in his humanity, he is asleep in the boat. And so we can say Jesus was asleep. But in his divinity, as Kevin just prayed this morning from Colossians 1, he is sustaining all things by the word of his power. If Jesus was asleep in his divinity, there would have been no wind. There would have been no waves. There wouldn't even have been disciples that could speak in that moment because everything would have vanished. He is in his humanity asleep, and in his divinity he is awake and sustaining all things. And Matthew is bringing this to bear time and time again in the gospel for us to see. Some of you have asked, well, what about that passage where Jesus says, I don't know the hour or the time? Only the Father does in heaven. Well, in His humanity, Jesus doesn't know the hour or the time, but in His divinity, He surely does. In His divinity, He can exercise all power if He so chose. In His humanity, He can't. In His divinity, He knows all things, but in His humanity, He doesn't. He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. And Matthew is trying to get us to see that even in this text. He's asleep in his humanity. And then in a moment, he awakes. And what does he do? With just a couple of words, he calms the sea. The sea stops. The winds cease. The storm is gone. Why? Because it knows its master. This is his sea. This is his world. This is his creation. So when he speaks by the power of the Spirit, it just ceases. And it calms like a, a whipped puppy with its tail between its legs. It just quiets. Because it knows when its Lord has spoken to it. And that gets to what Matthew wants us to see at the very end of this text. We saw in last week's passage that Jesus marveled, Matthew said, at the faith of the centurion. And now Matthew tells us, he says, the men. I love it. It's almost like he's, he's just punching us in the gut again. They're men. They're mere men, these guys on the, on the boat. The men marveled at Jesus, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And the answer is, he's the God-man. He's the God-man. He is a Savior worth following. He is worth giving our total commitment to, our un rivaled love to and our trusting faith to because there is none like him. He beckons you. He says, follow me. Have you responded to that call? And if you have, 
Do you continue to respond to that call day after day, moment after moment? He says, follow me. The disciple does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you sent your Son into this world. That he who knew equality with God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And that it is this Savior that is our Savior, the God-man worthy of all of our trust, is worthy of all of our dependence, all of our love, all of our commitment. We do pray that it would be true of all of us in this room that we have answered that one great question. We have become disciples of Christ. We pray that you would help us now moment to moment to continue to follow our Lord and Savior. For your glory and your praise. In Christ's holy name we pray.